0: And welcome to Serially Curious with Mark and Eve. I'm Eve. And I'm Mark. And we talk about things that are about climate, but also are like where we come across stuff and we're like, oh, that's cool. Huh.
1: The climate, the climate adjacent, the things that, yeah, make us go, what? Yes. Which is a lot for me.
0: And I am coming to you from the lands of the Gadigal and the Bijigal peoples today, Mark. I'm in a slightly different location. How about you? Oh wow,
1: <laughs> that's exciting. I'm still in uh, Tamaki Makoto, that's Auckland, uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand. And today I was in Hamilton, which I don't know the Maori name of, but it is in the Waikato region.
0: Yeah, and today we're, we're talking about something that is a very well-known concept among the traditional owners of the land on which I stand and where you are, which is... Uh, the Well, 1960s and 1970s, scholars have called deep ecology, but the idea that we're part of nature and akin to nature is something that is always present and always will be on this land. Yeah.
1: By the time of the 1960s and 70s, over a century into industrialization, us people had to remember that we're uh, also part of nature and we're not uh, dropped onto this planet like aliens with all of our technology and can just live uh, however we damn well please.
0: Yes. So I, for listeners who don't know, I do a PhD in storytelling about a mass extinction. Part of the main ideological foundations of colonization was that white people are separate from nature and from other races so you can't like that idea that separation is born from the same root as white supremacy so I think you know coming into this conversation undoing all of that and and starting the work to undoing all of that and seeing ourselves as interconnected yeah
1: and while I'm not doing a PhD and likely never will in anything, I am a sci-fi and apocalypse kind of media nerd, and I am fascinated by all the ways that we've told, told ourselves and each other's stories, pretending that we can survive the end of nature and ourselves continue and in some cases flourish and be okay and be like Elon Musk and go to Mars. And um, it's been a great kind of unlearning of all that for me being someone who grew up in a very non, non-rooted nature and not not exposed to any native cultures, a way of kind of like realizing that, oh, that's that's all complete BS. <laughs> and that if nature ends, uh, funnily enough, so do we.
0: Yeah, well, here's a little anecdote that I don't know if it's scientifically true, and I, and I know I studied oceanography, so I should know, but I don't know. But this is the best one that I do, which is when you do a wee... And then we goes into the ocean and then the ocean turns into rain and then it comes back at you and it rains on top of you. So you're so much a part of nature that that rain was part of you. And now it's coming back onto you. That's a visual for you.
1: I really like that. That really elaborates well on something that I always like to say, which is like, there's no such thing as new water. It's all been through something else before. But that story of illustrating the cycle of the rain by... Um, pee landing on your head when it rains as uh your own pee
0: it's personal and it's graphic you know and a little gross and i like it yeah yeah so today we're talking to felicity
1: felicity jefferson
0: about deep ecology in clinical psychology which is really yeah
1: and a freaking cool course that she's running for people to use um some of the fundamental kind of theories and applications of psychology especially cognitive behavioral therapy and why it's so timely and why even i are kind of recording this in a bit of a rush fresh back from our holiday break and like punchy like let's just no no script <laughs> let's do it live is uh there is a new course starting later this very month so if you're listening to this anywhere close to release date check out what can i do any other thoughts people should have before they go into this, do you reckon Eve? Maybe sit outside and listen, if you can.
0: Yeah, sit outside and Felicity like talks us through, well, talks you through a few exercises and things, and so it would be cool if you could imagine yourself like doing them or do them in miniature as you listen. I think that would be a really great thing to do if you have the time to relax while you listen to this episode.
1: This is one of those practical podcasts, Mm -hmm. a practicast.
0: Okay. Apply for funding from Calm app. I don't even know if that's real. Headspace. (laughs) Okay. All right. Enjoy.
1: (laughs) Felicity Jefferson is a registered psychologist with a BA in psychology with honors, a masters of psych, with many other letters attached to that that I don't really understand or know very well. And she's also a qualified primary school teacher. So I feel like my questions and level I'll be at, she'll be able to stoop down to my level quite easily, (laughs) which I really appreciate. And Felicity came to be on the show through a uh, guest form we actually have available on climactic.fm. And it's a great way of getting people from all walks of life to express interest on being on one of the shows on the Climactic Collective. And of course, the beautiful thing about the network is we've got shows just about everything. Felicity came to us through this guest form on Climactic.fm, and it was really, really cool. It'll be great to talk to Felicity about her journey and what she's doing now at the start of 2022 and what the rest of the year is going to look f- like for her. And so we'll jump right into it. So hi, Felicity. Welcome to Serially Curious. How are you today?
2: Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: You've come to us to sort of talk about a, a particular thing, a, um, a course you've set up in a running. We're going to hear a lot more about that and what your sort of goals are for, for 2022. But before we get into that, there's this concept that is sort of part of everything you're doing and you're, you're sort of steeped in a bit. And it's something I'm really curious about and I'd love to learn more about from you. And that's the concept of deep ecology. And can you tell us a bit about what, what Deep Ecology is, how you sort of came across it, and you know how you describe it, I guess, to start as a concept to people?
2: To be honest, I'm not even sure where I discovered it. Um, I think maybe through uh, some of the climate activist networks, um, probably online, um, sharing lots of resources there, but it was just um, an idea that really resonated with me. I mean, I think the history of it it originates in the 1960s and is technically like a philosophical movement Um, and it has clear principles and sort of goals and and definitions. But but for me what really resonates is just that it recognises how deeply complex um, this reality is, um, nature and how interconnected everything is, including humans, and that we are a part of nature. And from that, there aren't simple solutions that are going to um, solve this ecological crisis. It really um, does come down to very deep core issues that I think psychology has a lot to offer as well.
1: It's not a concept that you came across in the course of your studies or practicing of psychology as a psychologist. No, not at all. Do you feel like deep ecology is on its way to being sort of recognized by psychology?
2: Well, f- from my education, which was very mainstream, it was you know six years of university studies, um, three years undergraduate, one year on it, and then two years the masters of clinical psychology. We really barely even spoke about nature and the natural world. So I think it's a very uh, fringe um, area. Um, and one that I've sort of started to look into more since um, finishing. Yeah, so there's little pockets here and there of people um, recognizing it, and I think the climate crisis is um, bringing those conversations a lot more to the forefront.
1: I assume it, it really would. Uh, do you imagine that nowadays, in, uh, you know, if you were redoing, say, your undergraduate, awareness and concern about the climate crisis being much more common, do you feel like it would be much harder for the course you were doing, the professors who were taking it to sort of not address sort of humans as members of nature, you know, humans as natural beings, do you feel like it would be different for someone who's going through that course today?
2: Yes, I think since uh, 2018, when the climate crisis has really been talked about in the mainstream, thanks to people like Greta Thunberg and movements like XR, I think the new generations coming through, even just, uh, I only finished my master's, I think, in 2019, but my uh, supervisor, who I'm still in contact with, told me that a lot of the new um, students doing the master's course are looking to do their, you know, um, master's thesis in this area, and, and, you know, they know that I'm interested in it, so... That's why they were talking to me about it. But yeah, I think since that time, things have, have changed dramatically.
1: Can I ask what your master's thesis was on?
2: So my master's thesis was on self-compassion um, and in parenting.
1: Mm. So this was kind of presaging a little bit of an interest in in primary school education for you?
2: Um, I think it's a lot um, more complex than that which we could have a whole big conversation about that but you know um, talk about this a bit more later probably is that you know the ecological crisis and the climate crisis it does come from humans and human behaviors and human behaviors come from human psychology and I guess in my search over the last 20 years of my life to see where can I contribute something novel and important I actually found that The way that we relate to ourselves is really fundamental to how we relate to each other and to the world. And one intervention that can help us have more harmonious, empathic relationships is to develop our own uh, compassion for self. And I was looking at it in parenting because that's where we really learn it um, is from our parents.
1: So I guess to go a little bit pop psychology and to show my ignorance of sort of the nuances of the topic here, you know, we're talking about early childhood development and where our our relation to ourselves and then with and then through that how we relate to others and how we relate to nature, that coming from either, you know, the the nurture or nature perspective. But nature being, you know, the just the genes and makeup of how we were born, there's also the the nature of like how much we actually interact with the natural world as young people. And I'm sort of curious if if this is a facet at all of early childhood development or psychology at all that you've seen other people interact with. And it's also, is this how you kind of think of it, that there's maybe a different facet beyond just how our parents raised us and how we were born? We are made up by how our parents raise us and the genes we're born with. Is there maybe like a missing element there around you know, the nature we're exposed to and what that nature exposure does to us as people?
2: yeah, so I think um, modern psychology really does focus um, a lot more now on you know the environment in terms of um, what well, we call it nurture, don't we? You know, the parenting, the educators around us, all those systems. Um, there's an ecological systems theory that looks at how that how that moves out to the broader, you know um, you know government systems and countries and world. But I think yeah, one thing that is missing is that, you know, the physical environment and access to nature as in plants and animals and fresh air and things like that.
1: So many questions I have sort of spilling off that If of, you know, how, how do we even start sort of quantifying what the impact of that is? And if we do find that, oh my God, this does have a massive impact, how we kind of remediate that or fix that. If you lacked that in your formative years, if it's possible to ever catch up with a, with a lack of natural connection as a young person, but how did you kind of become aware of the potential importance of sort of natural connection and like, where does this, this interest come from for you?
2: Hmm, It's very hard to say. Um, So I grew up um, in Mount Druitt in Sydney, which is sort of a low socioeconomic area. We weren't that far from the Blue Mountains, to be honest. So every now and again, we'd take a trip up there, but my family didn't really spend that much time in nature. We didn't go camping or anything. I would say it's it's always been an innate thing for me. Um, they, I can't remember the name of the theory, but there's the theory of oh, Gardner's theory of multiple intelligence identifies that there's all these various um, domains that people can have strengths in. And I, I just think I've always been quite connected to nature just uh, intrinsically um, and, and have that deep sense of its importance and value.
1: So that's cool there is some scholarly work around this there is some kind of theories that we can build off as we kind of begin to learn more about this importance of a natural connection with the world as as human beings but you know, at some point you know, it wasn't always the case right that we we had we had to worry about it because it was completely natural it was like the default state that you were born you're exposed to the world's you gain an understanding and respect for it. And it's possible then to kind of think of yourself as a, as an ecological natural being and not have to think about nature as, as an, another thing to think about because you're just, you're part of it. Um, the health of the local stream is your health directly. But I guess that guess into the question of, of when you think we lost this and, and how, and we'll get into, you know, what we can maybe do about it, but where do you kind of, and it I guess it's just only interesting academically, but how do you personally think about how we kind of slowly weakened and lost that relationship as as natural beings?
2: Yes, I think it has been um, a slow degradation of that relationship over time and I think many would say that it originates around, you know, 12,000 years ago with the agricultural revolution supposedly we moved away from a more hunter-gatherer style of living and were able to stay in one place. And then slowly over time, we've been more and more removed from how dependent we are on the health of the rivers and the crops and the weather and things like that. And um, especially with cities, um, we've sort of created these walls to divide ourselves from nature. And I, th- I think there is a protective um, function for that.
1: As a thought experiment, like, you hear people constantly these days talk about the impacts of social media on young people developmentally. And does it, does it feel weird at all to you that like, oh, well, why, why do we focus so much on social media and its impacts uh, on people since MTV or television or mass media was the baseline? Why do we worry about this just latest little mini step rather than a big step change i guess like the introduction of agriculture and the domestication of people and and the becoming settled and like it feels kind of weird right to be talking about the impact that agriculture had on us as people 12,000 years ago and yet that was the step change <laughs> i guess like do do you think it's important i guess when looking at the development of young people it's worth kind of actually acknowledging that hey, this, this isn't how our ancestors 15,000 years ago lived, and we're still those beings, you know, genetically. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, was, it's not that long ago in terms of, yeah, evolutionary biology.
2: Mm. Yes, definitely, uh, because I think the way a lot of social media works is it does take advantage of... Uh, you know, our mammalian brain and, you know, those dopamine pathways, especially because of the economic system that we live in, which is very, you know, profit driven. And a lot of these apps um, and and programs and things, they're designed to make money and they make money by keeping you hooked, keeping you engaged. Um, So I think it is having a lot of, you know, negative impacts on our attention and taking up time. But at the same time, I think, it is a, a wonderful tool that if we learn to use it wisely, it, it, there's a lot of potential there as well with um, social media and technologies. But it, it is very tricky. Thank you for humoring my very just left to center, just
1: very theoretical questions. That's great. <laughs> so, I guess with acknowledging, I, I think we, we both think that it's a problem that we are disconnected from nature. In, in our modern times for, you know, yes, countless reasons and varying extents, but like, you know, people living in Australia are largely disconnected from the natural world around them, which makes it harder to empathize with and care about and protect the natural world leading to a climate crisis. I think that's maybe simplifying things, but but useful. What's a way we can address it, or maybe what's just one one particular way that you can think of that we can we can push back against that I don't know whether you call it a trend or that, that result of modernity.
2: I think the, uh, you know, our daily habits are really um, important and powerful and just um, if we can build in something small, but consistent that is going to um, build over time um, a way to connect to nature. And one practice that I really love, uh, which I, learned from Anna Greer of moving mindful nature is called the sit spot practice and so that involves finding a place uh, somewhere in in nature as as nature as you can get even if that's just your balcony or your garden and just going there regularly and spending you know up to an hour there but even if it's only five minutes ideally a few times a week if you can, and just sitting there and being curious about what's around you. And it's really interesting and unexpected what happens as you do that practice. For me, I really struggle with being busy, that's my issue. And so I haven't spent a lot of time doing this practice, but even the time that I have, I've start to realize that now, My sit spot, it feels like home, feels very familiar, I feel like we have a relationship and I'm learning more and more about what's there, you know, the other day I saw a little red crab come out and it was rolling a a seed and that felt really special and I found like a bird's nest that, um, you know, sometimes the mama bird goes there and you see it in, in the rain, you see it in the evening, in the morning, and the different creatures that come. And it's, it's small, and it's something that we might think is a bit silly, but I think it is actually um, way more powerful than we, we could even imagine.
1: That's more tangible and real and and directly applicable than anything I could have imagined. And um, as soon as you said sit spot, I was like, okay, I'm prepared for an acronym or for this. <laughs> but no, like, I, I absolutely love that just to how doable that is and i think in my own life i go for walks and i go somewhere different largely each time or even if it's the same spot i take a different route cuz just it's about not being it's about avoiding <laughs> my office and computer more than it is about acknowledging and enjoying the natural setting as much i really love that you by yeah finding your spot you know you are you're comfortable with that natural setting it, you're you're a part of it and then so it, it becomes a part of you and it becomes just part of your framing I guess for how you think about the world be your context that's that's lovely any pointers on on the perfect sit spot if you are in a suburb and you've got a park or a lake I don't know or a beach if you're lucky like in Melbourne like do all of them
2: I think if you can find somewhere where there's um, well, this is what I learned from Anna, like two ecologies meeting, especially, you know, if there's a, a body of water and land, um, there'll be, you know, a lot of diversity there, which will be really engaging. That's a really good point. But a I lot think, of our
1: parks, right? just When they're just grass and trees, you won't get a lot of the, the dynamism of life.
2: Yes, but I think whatever you have, they'll give it a go and, and wait and see what happens over time. I think you'll be surprised. But I think there's another powerful aspect, like even if you just forget um, nature, is the sitting aspect. I think we have this culture that is also harmful, which requires us to be constantly doing and busy and moving from the past to the future, and we never really just be and listen and allow um, what's around us to teach us in a more passive way. We're all, we're very, at, you know, active and pushing for, pushing for things. And there's a quote by Bayo Akamolafu who, who says, the times are urgent, let us slow down. And I think that's another lesson that we really need to embrace now.
1: How do you kind of help people who, you know, have that affliction that we all do of busyness like what are the benefits i guess of of spending time in the present i like, I honestly find it hard to think about a lot of times I spend during a week where I am just being present or still, or even if I'm doing something like like reading a book would be the closest I'd get to this, and even that's about consuming a story, consuming knowledge you know it's 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 kind of a forward act as well how I do it how do you kind of i don't know. Help me <laughs> if I was asking you for help in, in being present more of the time.
2: Yeah, I think there's two things. And I think one reason why we don't want to just be is because there's probably um, things we don't want to feel that come up when we don't have a distraction, even if it's just exhaustion, <laughs> you know, feeling tired or having a headache when you sit you become aware of that we need we need we need distractions and so that might be too much you know ideally i think meditation practice is an ideal way to just be um just focusing on your breath but for some people that's too much and so i think things like um slow practices i like yin yoga is amazing um creating some art you know whether it be painting or sewing or whatever you like, just something that's not for profit. You know, it's not, not for a purpose. It's just to enjoy that, that moment or writing your thoughts down, just anything a bit s- slow gardening.
1: And these are all activities that kind of carry the same positives of your sit spotting or your spending time in nature, but they don't have the extra benefits that's sitting in nature give you which I framed it terribly but (laughs) would you mind kind of yeah like helping us sort of quantify or understand what what benefit do we get from spending that time in nature rather than say at home doing doing art practice not that that's a bad thing to do but what are like some of the extra elements you get from nature time
2: yeah so there are plenty of studies that um show us that spending time in nature has a whole heap of benefits on our mental health and physical health, reduce stress levels, uh, reduce depression and anxiety, increase well-being. Uh, I think there's studies showing that in soil there's all these m- microorganisms that when we breathe them in they increase dopamine. Um, to be honest, I haven't read, a, bothered to read a lot of studies about the benefits of nature because for me it just seems so obvious <laughs> Yeah, as you said before, you know, if you think about it, we evolved our brains, our nervous systems in nature. That's where we're meant, meant to be. There's, there's fresh air. Um, but I think there's a lot more beyond the, you know, physical mental health benefits regarding um, some of those deeper questions that pe- people have about you finding a place to belong, connection meaning purpose and there's so much wisdom i think in in nature that from you know our colonial origins that we have lost touch with
1: absolutely and to start kind of pushing back against that a bit you know as we record this it's it's just the first week of the new year and a lot of people be on you know those new year's resolutions kicks and they'll be wanting to do something beneficial and improve themselves and as you say there's a host of benefits of being outdoors so like maybe to make it really practical and boil it down for folks what's a a new year's resolution style approach to increasing your nature time
2: Yeah I guess like I said um it's about your daily weekly habits or even a month or something but um with goals it's very easy to set them and it's hard to keep them and so Having things like an accountability buddy or actually come up with a, a smart goals. I don't know if people know about that, you know, um, set a date, book, book it in, you know, if you want to go camping, you know, once every two months or something like that, actually start planning your first um, time now, look at your schedule, roster it in there. and
1: The reasons why people wouldn't do this aren't very compelling or good except for the fact that we all suffer from an an inability to do things that are good for us or things we enjoy sometimes. And I guess the, the catch all label for that is, is apathy or it's busyness or apathy spawning from our busyness. And how would you kind of describe the power that apathy has to, to stop us from doing these positive things? And like, like do you do you feel like apathy like this is as a large force in society that we're living in now
2: i think it is and i think that um it does come back i think to the profit driven economic system that you know a lot of advertising just send these messages that increase this sense of powerlessness and helplessness and that the answers in buying this or having that that will solve those problems we have but it, it keeps us powerless at the at the same time so I think it is a huge problem in society that that has its roots in in the economic system
1: so with things how they are how do you advise people to confront those feelings you know if like many of these conversations and I have many that I you know times that I agree with people about economic changes and, and societal changes, but they're always, you know, step zero, change everything. And then I can get onto step one <laughs> of like spending more time in nature. Yes. It's like, how, how have you, I guess we've, we have talked about it, but like, what's maybe step one for someone in confronting their apathy and spending more time in nature. And then we'll get into, you know, what, what else people can do beyond that first step. But maybe I think you you said before, you know, accountability buddies are a great way to do it using things like New Year's resolutions, but even, I guess, earlier in the process than that, like, I guess someone has to know why they should. What's a why? <laughs> why, why should they take that first step?
2: I mean, for me, ha- having apathy, it doesn't feel good. And living from a place of apathy and making decisions from a place of apathy, it doesn't feel good. And so I question, you know, is this something you want to keep carrying around with you do you want to keep this apathy with you is it serving you and if it's not then decide that you want to get rid of it and recognize the origins i think this is a really powerful powerful thing in psychology and healing is when we realize the origins of something that isn't serving us then we can start to release it and i would say that that apathy it comes from outside of you. It's not your natural state. And
1: yeah, you'd be a pretty crummy organism who is uh, in a natural state, kind of not interested and in, doesn't want to do anything.
2: <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So once someone's taken that first step and they've decided, all right, you're right, you know, why, why aren't I doing something? Well, I, uh, why, why should I do something differently? Well, it doesn't feel good not doing something. And if I do something, it'll be good for me. So it opens the question up of what can I do once I've decided to make a change? And I understand you've got some thoughts on that. What what can I do? What can people do to the extent that, and we haven't talked about it up until this point, but you started something in 2021 and it was called, what can I do? And can you tell us a bit about that? What What is this thing and when did you start it?
2: So I started it in May last year. Prior to that, I'd sort of, you know, I uh, spent most of my adult life, to be honest, studying and doing my career. But in 2018, I sort of, everything came to a peak, I guess, with the climate crisis and realized, okay, time to get really active. And so I started doing a bit more activism. But then I sort of thought about it more. And I'm realize there's so many people here in society that are concerned about it but they're in this place of apathy and what are the barriers to people getting involved because I really believe that if enough of us get involved we can solve this crisis or at least um, reduce the the negative impact significantly and I think that psychology has so much to offer and I'm really grateful that I've spent so many years studying this because you know the climate crisis, it's created from human behaviour, and that comes from human thoughts and our beliefs and our assumptions we have. So I think psychology has a huge role to to play in the the shift that needs to happen in in our behaviours. So I wanted to apply my knowledge as a psychologist to trying to solve this. Issue of how do we get more Australians to feel empowered to do what they can to help the climate crisis and not feel so overwhelmed or apathetic or or just confused about what they can do? So yeah, that's why I created the the main part of What Can I Do Australia is our ten week climate action challenge. We've run that twice and we're getting to run that again on the twenty fourth of January for the third time. So after you know, years of, of looking at this question. What, what can we do? And, and being an activist, of sort of distilled down ten of the main things that just regular Aussies can do to help, and they're really quite simple things that we we can all do. But throughout the course, you commit to taking an action a week in ten different areas. And through that process, you learn about, okay, this is where I have power. I also have power here. I have power here. And then that's knowledge that you have, you know, to, to go forward after the course.
1: There's a, uh, uh, I'm podcast guy. I'm falling into the trap here of I, everything in the world looks like a nail to me as a hammer. But um, there's a podcast series called Heaps Better, which was done by a couple of friends of mine and uh, commissioned by Greenpeace. And it was all about. Yes, what what people can do uh, is also, uh, and power mapping was a big part of that. And actually, like, understanding what capabilities and resources you have and the people around you have and what you can mobilize. And it's wonderful. So maybe would it be fair to say another another name for what can I do would be, like, how can I act? Would you call it a, a, a boot camp for action? How do people go from, like, kind of wanting to do something or, you know, feeling anxious to, a state of of a state of action i don't want to say mobilization but engagement
2: yes definitely that's what we're trying to do we're just trying to help people engage with the climate crisis and with the actions that they can take and i think another name for it could also be what power do i have
1: so can you take me through the course like how's it been these first two you've you've run um how did it feel
2: it's felt mostly really good, but it's, you know, we st- I started it on my own from nothing. So it's been a bit of an uphill uphill journey. Um, but, you know, every now and then, well, not every now and then, but, you know, I do have people telling me like, this is a good idea. Like, this is great. And those little bits of feedback where people are saying, you know, really encouraging stuff that's kind of kept me pushing up the hill. And now I've got a small team with me, which is amazing, and so I think this every round is getting you know bigger and better, and it really inspires me. You know, there is a community building around it now. Um, we're quite active on Instagram as well, so it's great to see. You know, we we have daily posts generally around these themes.
1: It can be hard to find, and really exciting when you do find an engaged community who is cl- climate active. And who you can go to as a consistent and reliable source of friendship and peers and and motivation, but not like in a, oh God, these people are up here on a mountaintop, you know, the aspirational kind, but the quietly inspirational kind of, yeah, friends and peers and people also Mm. just sort of mucking in at the same level as you. That's really great. You've got that.
2: We're working on developing like an advanced challenge. You know, there is a a mixture of people in the community that are sort of just starting out, as well as people that have been um, engaged um, for a while. And so that's going to be a lot more um, involved and we're hoping to launch that in May as well.
1: Oh, great. So this will also be a 10-week course?
2: I think be sort of a a, a three-month course and it'll be quite a different structure. It will have maybe fortnightly sort of Zoom discussions and and presentations and we'll be more exploring ideas more in-depth important ideas as well as uh, looking at action and and that's an important part of it I think and that I also get from my psychology is it comes from cognitive behavioral therapy which is the you know gold standard treatment for most um, mental health issues and that is That our thoughts and our beliefs as well as our behaviors impact how we feel and, and impact each other so we kind of need both we need to be looking at our thoughts and our beliefs and changing those to be more helpful beliefs where we feel empowered rather than apathetic but we also need to be doing things like actually taking behaviors and making commitment because what research in psychology has found is we align our attitudes and our beliefs and our thoughts to our behaviors, whereas a lot of people think it's it's the other way around.
1: So I've gone through courses like this, maybe not exactly like what can I do, but it's been a great experience. And I, I freaking love the chance to just spend time with other people in the climate community who aren't already friends or people i didn't already know because you kind of don't have to overcome that initial surprise of like oh you're one of those people who talk about climate change or you know think they can do something or they care about that you you can just relate to people you know you start at that level and then grow from there and it's lovely Mm and it's it's the Mm -hmm. best and um i could have easily spent this whole episode talking to you about the course uh, but I thought hey we've got someone who's yes you know got is this awesome psychology background and has thought deeply about these topics and thank you for kind of humoring me on my, my with my pop cultural psychology understanding about you know That's why great. it's so important to spend time in nature and kind of understanding problems that we've got as as modern people having to overcome this weakness of not having spent a lot of time in nature and don't not having that grounding so, in preparation for, for this, and we you know, in talking offline, I asked you the question of, what would you do if you had you know a a big soapbox? You had you know the opportunity to to be interviewed by the ABC or you know some other sort of mass media. Like, what's a a message you think you'd want to share with a big crowd of people? And what you said was that it's important that we shift consciousness to create social change. That that a shift in consciousness is required for social change. And how do you kind of define that that statement? I guess like you know, and and how do you kind of I guess support it? Like what what evidence have you seen for this and in, in your own understanding of how society's changed over time? Um, how do we shift consciousness and and why?
2: I'm very inspired, and I think um, this quote sort of sums up this idea, and I think it's from Albert Einstein, and it says that. No problem can be solved from the same level of consciousness that created it.
1: Very succinct, like you absolutely nailed it. That is the answer to the yeah. question.
2: Yeah. But how, how do we shift it? That is, that is the challenge. Um, and I think, you know, ideas are really powerful and, and conversations and, and thinking deeply. But I think we, we first need to diagnose the problem which is that some of our beliefs and ways of thinking are unhelpful and they are creating this. We probably want to work out what they are. And then we want to look at what are the alternatives. Um, And I think there are also practices that help us to, to shift our consciousness. I think the sit spot practice is one. I think meditation is one. But I think we also need to be prioritising learning from Indigenous peoples, if, if not just because they have lived you know, sustainably. They don't have the problem that we have of, of destroying the planet. When I say we, I'm talking about those identifying with the dominant culture. And I think there's so much in terms of shifting consciousness that can happen when we we learn from First Nations peoples. Uh, one book that I'm I've just started reading, which is blowing my mind, is Sand Talk by Tyson Yunkaporta. If you haven't read that, um, definitely read it. I'm going to read it numerous times.
1: How do you feel? <laughs> start of 2022, and I guess for so for everyone, the last two years have just been um, unexpected. We've been unprepared, um, and they've just felt like just massive. So here we are at the start of the the third year of of the COVID era, and it's another year down in the the climate race to net zero, and you're doing something about it. So I guess how do you kind of feel about just the world (laughs) and what it is you're doing through What Can I Do?, and I guess what, what kind of emotions are you feeling on any kind of given day?
2: Well, I think the main one is just exhaustion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been a big time and, you know, last year starting, what can I do on my own? I, I think I did burn myself out a bit. So I am hoping to take a bit more time to go in with this year and, and self, have self-care and hopefully with, with the team, I'll be able to do that a bit more. But, I, you know, I also feel inspired, like I feel like what can I do? Australia is growing now, and every day um, people, I'm reading people's comments on the Instagram and, and getting emails from people, and it's just, you know, it's it's giving me hope, and, and yeah, so I think it's, it's you know, both exhausted and inspired. There
1: you go. That's a, that's a potent cocktail. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Another really great concept that really um, I sort of try to live by and is integrated into the What Can I Do Australia course comes from Joanna Macy, and that's the concept of active hope. So she differentiates between hope that is based on expecting a certain outcome uh, or hopefulness, and the other is a hope based on what we desire. That's not tied to the outcome and she also calls that active hope where we're actively working to try to bring about that, that reality. And so for me, it's not necessarily about whether we're successful or not. It's about the process. And when I'm living from this place of active hope, it helps me, you know, when I get out of bed in the morning, brightens my day rather than... Um, Maybe, yeah, some of these other things.
1: Well, thank you so, so much for your time, Felicity. And I'm really excited about what can I do and to see where it goes. So I would highly, highly recommend anyone listening to check out What Can I Do Australia on their Instagram account to look out for the launch of new courses this year, one starting just later in January. This is now on me to get this up and out quickly and on you to listen in a timely manner. But if you do miss out on that one, there is a more advanced course coming later in the year, more of a, an extended program. And Felicity, just, yeah, thank you so much for your time. And it would be awesome to have you back any point in the future to maybe talk more about, you know, different psychological concepts and how they interact with the climate crisis or or maybe even get someone else here in the interview seat who uh, knows a bit more about things than me. But thank you so much. <laughs> You've been a champion.
2: Anytime. It's been great. Thank you for having me.
1: Pleasure.
0: And we're back. What do you think, Mark?
1: Well, I I did apply some of what Felicity taught me last week. So as we record this, it was about a week ago that I had this chat with Felicity, and then I had a hell of a week at work, did not apply sit-spotting, even though I was damn keen to, because I thought it was such a good, understandable, applicable, and... And just slightly more refined technique of what I already do. So when I'm outside, and I'm walking around my neighborhood. I do stop occasionally and look at nature, and I like observing the things around me. But I was really missing the consistency, and I've actually like going to a place, being there for long enough to observe what was going around me. And I did that a little bit today. I was at some some beautiful natural gardens. Well, I've had some beautiful gardens, some of which are far less natural than others because it's a very manicured, amazing place. If any of you are ever coming to Aotearoa, New Zealand, and you go to Hamilton, go to the Hamilton Gardens. But the things I was noticing today, I was very actively thinking about what I was thinking about while observing nature, noting that thought pattern in my head and actually thinking like, okay, how is this kind of helping me take more action on climate or being more just aware of the beauty, fragility, importance—whatever another word should be there—for for the the nature around me. So that's what I took away from it, and I hope any of the other things I talked about with Felicity was of value, and and hopefully you took something away as well, Eve.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it was a good sort of intro to, for people who like taking a breath. And learning to what Donna Haraway would say, stay with the trouble. So it's, we've had conversations in private before about when you treat an emergency, I am by no means endorsing the US military, but they have a phrase called slow is smooth and smooth is fast. So we have an emergency on our hands, but taking a moment, And being a bit disciplined about noticing these things um, is important because it simultaneously allows us to make better decisions when we're under pressure. But also it means that we notice when things change. And that's really important because if we don't have the people on the ground noticing and then maybe even intervening, and trying to nurture the places that were are around us that's how we got into this mess in the first place so yeah
1: and it is funny to hear you quote uh, a US army motto or mantra but it is a very good one and you know they they come across these pearls of wisdom through um through a lot of slogging through the mud <laughs> so they they kind of know a good bit of value when they find it
0: yeah look that's like the only thing that I'm like, oh, thank you, U.S. military, <laughs> and I feel like they could have come across that wisdom another way. Yeah, but <laughs> there
1: you go. Is this the like the course that Felicity's doing? Is like of interest to you, or or who do you think it might be? Kind of in your life or anyone you know of that you think like who could use a bit of help being exposed to these ideas, or maybe like help with a a practice around how to incorporate them into your life.
0: Yeah. I think there's lots of people in my family and friendship group that could benefit um, from this. So a lot of what I do day to day in my design practice is go and sit and draw and notice patterns and things like that. So for me personally, it's like, it's a great beginner's course. It's great for people with not a lot of time to do this. I am lucky enough to, you know, tomorrow morning I'm heading off to go and sit alone in the bush for five days (laughs) so it's like like um but my family and my my mom who works and my sister who works full-time I know that I'll probably like direct them to these exercises um Mm -hmm. because I know that they always feel better when they've been a bit structured in sitting and noticing.
1: I aspire to, over the course of the next year, spend as much time outside sitting and observing and slowing down and noticing patterns and noticing changes. Over the next year, the equivalent of the time you're gonna spend in the next five days, a hundred and twenty hours doing this. Uh would I fit twenty minutes in a couple days a week? <laughs> I'll be pretty chuffed with myself and I'll uh Compare my tally sheet against your five day total.
0: I think when it comes to this stuff, that's a very quantified self. I think you need to go for the qualified self. If you feel like you've done 120 hours, you own that, you know, you just, if you go off a vibe, I don't think you should record it. (laughs) You should just go, yeah, yeah, that feels, that feels right. You know?
1: Just like many other things in my life, I would do myself a favor by not trying to compare myself against you and thinking I could come off (laughs) half as good (laughs) on many metrics.
0: Yeah, but I'm um... just saying, like, say that you're as good as me and believe it in yourself. Like, just believe it. (laughs) I'm not measuring my time.
1: (laughs) Bit of mental bath for me there.
0: Five days
1: in the bush alone. Oh, my God. Triple digits already amazing well yeah any any kind of nuggets that stand out to you from that or any kind of closing words from people because like this is this is the point i guess of us doing this after an interview is to kind of check back and be like what are we what are we taking away from this because this is the point i sort of like curious because we, we both would like do interviews or we'd listen to podcasts and be like so that was good but i i can't remember why yeah <laughs> or what did i learn And I always ask myself at the end of these interviews...
0: Yeah, I think there's lots of layers that are beneficial, I think, um, for people that, you know, are feeling simultaneously overcommitted and overwhelmed by the climate and biodiversity crises. I think this course will be a really great way for you to learn tools and skills to implement the slow is smooth and smooth is fast attitude. Mm -hmm. And for people... Like me, who's worked as an environmental educator and who, you know, is deeply like in my own little bubble um, when it comes to this stuff. I think it's really it was a really interesting talk in the sense of like, oh, yeah, like this is step one. You know, this is the intro to what this is. And and it's really important to remain aware and to bring more and more people along with us um, when it comes to being part of the world that we're on
1: yeah for me this this whole conversation and the the course that is running is a a really good follow-up to anyone's head crack moment anyone's kind of realization of the enormity and severity of the climate crisis and then it is like a a filled you know what, what i've been calling it good you can do it's it's what can i do and I think I'm gonna have to re-record the entire intro now. This is all staying in, by the way. But yeah. <laughs> I think it's you know what what can I do, Australia? And I think what Felicity's done is is that moment that you know as soon as someone is there and at that stage, with are like, oh crap, this is serious. This is big. We all have to do something. But what can I do? And I I just love that there's an answer. Because people ask me that all the time. It's ever since, you know, I'm someone that people know of as a guy who cares about climate and says so they'll come to me and be like, well, what can I do? I'll be like, you know, vote, uh, you know, uh, become an activist. I don't know. Like, what do you want to do? But um, knowing how to think about it and and just knowing how you're thinking yourself, what's going on in your own head. Jeez, it's hugely powerful. but So, so few of us do it. Or know how to do it.
0: Yeah. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of jargon. Do you know about the Anthropocene? Mm. Yeah, so there's a lot of jargon around like what that means. What does it mean? Well, I, was, do we... I was
1: gonna challenge you, like you know there's alternative terms for the Anthropocene? Like yeah. the Humilocene. That's what We've I was done about episodes. to say. We've done an episode <laughs> on
0: the Humilocene when The Holocene. It, the Holocene is not the same as the Anthropocene.
1: So this is why I don't know half as what, of what you do.
0: So the Holocene moved into the Anthropocene. The Holocene was like 12,000 years ago at the end of the last Ice Age.
1: Good. Okay. So anyway. for anyone who wants to know what the good old days were, quantified. It's the Holocene.
0: Yeah. You know, the good old days, I'm not a nostalgia person. I'm not a like, let's go back in time kind of gal.
1: You're not a, oh, it was better 12,000 years ago. Remember then. Remember way back. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh- <laughs> You were still being eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. A big bird, <laughs> carry you away. Yeah, uh. stuff like that. You know, I'm not saying that that was bad. I don't judge people who lived 12,000 years ago. I'm just like, I'm not. I'm not about that like comparative life. But, yeah. but, Humilocene is a term by Temma Milstein, friend of the network, and. I think there's a lot of talk about moving through this movement humbly, recognizing the urgency in what needs to happen, but to resist that urgency in the day-to-day. And these are exercises that put people in a, in a really great mindset to understand that it's like, no, this is important. We need to value this. We need to keep going. But am the decisions that I'm making right now driven by fear, which we know is a really bad way of making a decision, or is it driven by care and observance and humility? And learning to recognise that in yourself means that it's gives us the best chance that we're going to make the right decisions as we move through.
1: Yeah, that, that's really what stood out to me after, you know, from that conversation with Felicity. It's just the, an embodiment of that we need a different way of thinking about things in order to solve a problem. We can't... The the great quote she gives from, I believe it is Einstein, and I'm not going to check. So if we're going to give it to Einstein. You can't solve a problem with the same mentality the problem was created with. with. Yes. And I'm starting to see a way of... For myself, finally, of having a different mindset and a different mentality. Because I've always been like, yes, yes. And I will develop one of those eventually. And I just sort of haven't yet. But I'm starting to see that, you know, through. And that's why I'm just latching on so much. That little concrete thing of having a sit spot. And I feel like that's going to be a seed that a lot of other things are going to grow out of for me. And just like a discipline and a practice and a habit around spending time in a place that ultimately wanting to protect that and noticing how it's changing, deeper, better fuel than short-term fear and, yeah, than being reactive all the time, which is what a lot of us fall into. Yeah.
0: Um, And I think, like, in terms of you and me, that the real lesson at the moment is that you should spend more time in gardens. Sick.
1: 100%. (laughs) That's going to be like at linked linked in the show notes is going to be a selection of photos taken today at hamilton gardens because if you can't find yourself a good sit spot look at some beautiful photos of amazing gardens think about what we're we're doing in the face of the climate crisis and and why we're doing it and find your own kind of deeper reason
0: yeah and if and if those thoughts are too big for you right now just try and like find a cool book. yep all right (laughs)
1: It's, and and this timon and pumba advice corner yeah. find a cool bug don't eat it but find it yeah you did say bug
0: i love bugs yes yes uh- <laughs> the way you said it i'm like
1: bog book
0: oh bug. bug.
1: Uh- <laughs> i didn't know who, we were shrek <laughs>
0: that's cool um uh, well until next time
1: eve as always it's been a pleasure and um, I promise next time to be prepared and you know, on point and just, you know, way better. But for now, this is what we all get yeah. at the start of 2022. Happy year three of the pandemic, everyone. I hope you're all as well as possible.
0: Let's go. All right. Until next time, stay curious.
2: Bye.